work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. If you'd turn there with me, we're going to read the next section. Acts 2, verses 22 through 28. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, your word. It is our glory to study it. And I pray that as we uh, study and understand it, uh, Father, that this would be a uh, strengthening, a stabilizing, and a sanctifying influence in our lives. We pray that you would take the word, quicken it to us, and enable me to faithfully preach it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last week, we looked at the introduction that Peter gave to the sermon. Today, we're diving into the heart of the sermon. We're uh, only going to go up through verse uh, 28 and see how Peter identified with the Lord in his humility. He was not ashamed of Jesus. So let's begin at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. I just want to stop there because I think that is a very significant uh, clause. For Peter to deliberately be identifying Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth is a kind of a remarkable thing when you understand how Nazareth was viewed back in those days. And then secondly, uh, it goes a little bit further, we need to understand that 53 days before, Peter was ashamed of Jesus. He was ashamed to be identified with him uh, himself when he was captured. And uh, Peter went into the courtyard of the high priest to look and see what was going on, which took some boldness in itself. Uh, there were three people who identified Peter with Jesus. The first servant girl said, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. Now, when Jews from Jerusalem added that phrase from Galilee or of Galilee to a name, it was usually a put down. Uh, according to several scholars, those were the hillbillies uh, of Israel. And so he was basically, uh, she was basically saying, you know, you were with Jesus, the hillbilly. Um, and uh, Peter denied knowing the Lord. Matthew 26, 71 then goes on to say, And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. Now, if it was considered to be somewhat down to be a Galilean, uh, it was even worse to be from Nazareth. It was considered to be the armpit, or worse, of Israel. Um, uh, even Nathaniel, who was a godly man, said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, that was the reputation that Nazareth had. Well, Matthew goes on to say, And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. 
Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Now, the reason his speech betrayed him was that Galileans didn't know how to talk properly, at least according to the Judeans, they didn't know how to. And the commentator said it would be sort of like a hillbilly from West Virginia uh, going and making address to an address to uh, people at Harvard University. It was kind of a disparity, you know, of cultures that was there. And yet, who is it that he is addressing in uh, verse 14? Uh, he's uh, addressing the men of Judea and those dwelling in Jerusalem. And then verse 22, men of Israel. And they could tell he was not one of them. Now, with that as a background, let's look at those words again. Men of Israel, hear these words. He's no longer intimidated by these classier uh, Jews. He speaks with authority. And the specific message of the cross that he's going to be bringing to them in this uh, chapter, in this sermon, is a message that Paul said continued to be a stumbling block to the Jews. They had a real hard time uh, with this idea that Jesus was crucified or that the Messiah could have been crucified. And so it would have been very tempting for them to start to soften the message a little bit, repackage it, make it look somewhat attractive and appealing uh, to these people. But Peter does not do that. In fact, God goes out of his way to make it clear that any Jews who submit to this message have been humbled. Uh, they must, first of all, be willing to receive the message from a man who did not have any formal education, academic credential. He spoke with an awful accent. In fact, I want you to turn to chapter 4 and look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Now, why would they marvel? I think they marveled because they expected these hillbillies to be intimidated by them, but they were not. And so it goes on to say, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus um, was very unimpressed with the class distinctions that were going on in Israel. A uh, person with a, a Ph.D. or a degree behind his name did not mean a whole lot to the Lord Jesus. In fact, of the apostles, the only one who had a degree was the Apostle Paul. He get the, got that at the feet of Gamaliel. And the rest of the apostles fit the description that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And he ends that chapter by saying, he who glories let him glory in the Lord. And so right off the bat, Peter makes sure that he does not soften the message of the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God. Now, it doesn't matter what these people think of the Nazarenes. What matters is what does God think? Uh, and Peter piles fact upon fact to indicate there is no good reason for them to be rejecting uh, their Messiah, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. They could not plead ignorance. Their unbelief was not because they lacked evidence. That's what a lot of people like to think. You know, if we had more evidence than I would believe, it was not a lack of evidence. There was boatloads of evidence that could be given that Jesus was the Messiah. He was pointing out that their unbelief 
was a willful unbelief. And um, I think that's one of the purposes of apologetics, is it not? It's uh, to clear away any of the vain excuses that people may give so that if they persist in their unbelief, it's clear that it's a willful unbelief. <clears throat> I do want you to notice, though, the purpose of these miracles, signs, and wonders. It was to attest that Jesus was indeed a man of God. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles. Now, this is so contrary to the claim of many people. I've got a commentary in my uh, office that says this. What Jesus did was clear proof that he was God, both for his generation and for every generation after that. Now, I think the motive of some people in saying this is, you know, we can't do the miracles of Jesus because we're mere men and he was, uh, he was a... He was the God-man. That's how come he can do miracles. The motive for others is apologetics. They're trying to show to Jews and others who think that Jesus was only a man that he was God. He was more than a man. But however sincere and however um, good-intentioned uh, uh, this may be, it really is a bogus claim. And I'll explain why. When Christ did miracles in the Gospels, it is clear that he did not do them with his own power as the Son of God, even though he had the power to be able to do so. He limited his expressions of his divine power while he was here on earth, and he did so so that he could experience everything that we experience while he was here on earth. Uh, so when J Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness to turn the bread, I mean the stones into bread, what he was tempting him to do was to use his own divine power and to stop living as the perfect man, as our model of how to deal with temptation, and just to use his own, and he refused. In fact, in fact, what Jesus does is he does not resist Satan in his own authority. He resists with the authority of God's word. He depended upon the Father through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so look at verse 25 again here. It says, he did uh, signs which God did through him. He always prayed to the Father for healings, for, you know, the raising of the dead, um, you know, the miracles that he did. He always depended upon the Father and did it through the empowering of uh, the Holy Spirit. And if those things prove that Jesus was divine... And I've made this mistake in the past, saying, well, you know, this proved that Jesus was divine. But if they proved that he was divine, then it proved that Peter was divine when he walked on the water. It proved that Peter was divine when he raised Dorcas from the dead in Acts chapter 9. Uh, or when the apostles uh, healed lepers, which nobody could, could heal. That does not prove that they were divine. What it does is it shows that God was working through them, just as these miracles that uh, Peter alludes to show that God was working through Jesus. And so I think it's important to realize Jesus exercised exactly the same power that the apostles exercised when he did miracles. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you one example. Matthew 5.28, he says, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. 
Not by my own power. He had the power to be able to do it, but he says, no, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Why does he depend upon the Spirit? It's because he is the model man and he is showing us how to do these things uh, by uh, the empowering of the Spirit. There is no reason that uh, men, women, and children do not have access to do the same kind of miracles if God is glorified and if it serves His kingdom purposes. Now, we can't just uh, do miracles on demand, and I don't think anybody did miracles on demand. It was always, when it served God's purposes, it was always uh, uh, by God's sovereign decree. But what I'm saying is miracles by themselves do not prove divinity unless you qualify it by the second point. And the second point is, and you can see that in that clause there in verse, uh, in verse uh, 25, verse 22, <laughs> a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Uh, miracles had a role of bringing attestation. Now, that word to attest means to certify, to guarantee that something is true. And so, at least in part, the purpose of those miracles was to attest to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. He was who he claimed to be. And so, in that sense, they did show that he was divine. Why? Because he claimed to be divine. It shows that he was true in what he claimed to be, but it had an attesting uh, purpose in other people's lives as well. For example, the apostles. It attested that they were indeed the apostles of Christ that they claimed to be. And so they are called signs of an apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Uh, they attested to the fact that the temple that Solomon built was truly a temple that God was authorizing by sending fire out of heaven, by having that Shekinah glory in that temple. Uh, in Mark chapter, the last cha a few verses of Mark, he says they attest to the fact that believers are truly who they say they are. And so Peter highlights the fact that Jesus did these miracles as a man. Why? Because there's going to be men in this, in this uh, uh, book of Acts who are going to do miracles through the powering of God. And he also secondly says they are God's attestation that Jesus was who he says he was. Why? Because, again, they're going to be showing that they are God's attestation to the truth of their testimony as well. And this message desperately needed some authentication because God was bypassing every means by which people might say, the gospel's cool, the gospel is something that we can respect. Uh, no, it was not a respectable message uh, in the first century. It was embarrassing in the eyes of the world. Just think of this. Jesus was born in a stable to a peasant woman. He grew up in Nazareth. Um, he associated with Galileans. He associated and ministered to sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. And what made things worse, that alone is not the way politicians, you know, try to rise through the corporate ladder. You try to identify with people who are cool, right? Jesus didn't do that. What made it worse, he died a death, which was proof positive to many Jews. He could not be the Messiah because that was a death of a criminal, of a common thief uh, that would be given. And so a person might think, even if Jesus is right in what he says, man, do I really feel like I can identify with this criminal? Do I want to be considered to be somebody who is doing something illegal? Think about how Christians come to Christ in China 
and you'll get a little bit of a feel of what they were going through. You've got to enter into why it is that there was shame amongst the Jews back in those days. In China, if you become a Christian uh, nowadays, automatically, in the underground church, automatically you are treated as a criminal and you're lumped together with peasants. That's why it's been so difficult up and through uh, the year 2000 for academics and others to become Christians because it was a shame to become a Christian. You're treated as a peasant. 99% of the Christians in China are amongst uh, the peasants, which may be one of the reasons why there are so many miracles again. God authenticating, delighting in bringing through the common and through the humble, but authenticating the fact that he indeed uh, is, is with them. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 13 says, Let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, or as some translate it, sharing his shame with him. Now, you guys live in a totally different century than they did, and so the things that you're ashamed of may be totally different than the things that they are ashamed of, but uh, you know what it is that God has been convicting you of that you need to be doing what areas you need to be following the Lord in. And maybe you've been rationalizing in your mind, is there some way that I can make this at least somewhat respectable to people so they don't think that I am weird? But listen to what Jesus said. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And so my admonition to you is don't seek the praise of men. Your cry should be not ashamed of Jesus. Now moving on, verse 23 says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, one question that may have come up in the minds of people, in fact, it did, on the cross, they said, if he can't save himself, how can he save others? So that may have been a question that would have come into people's minds. How does this fit? You know, if he couldn't even save himself, how could it be a savior of other people? And Peter gives four answers. He says, first of all, this has been God's plan all along. Secondly, Jesus laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. Thirdly, Jesus was raised from the dead to sit on his messianic throne. Fourth, this Pentecost outpouring is an evidence that Jesus was indeed reigning. And we're not only going to have time for the first two answers. And we'll look at the, the next two uh, last two uh, next time. In verse 23, Peter points out that the Father planned this all along. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Notice it doesn't just say that the Father knew this was going to somehow happen to Jesus. Uh, if he was not in control of that event, that foreknowledge would be no comfort at all. It would be no answer to the critics at all. Uh, instead, what he does is he gives three words here to show that there is absolutely no detail of this crucifixion that was outside of God's control. First, it was foreknown. God was not blindsided. Second, it was God's purpose or plan that he be crucified. And by the way, that's why it was foreknown. Acts 15 Verse 18 says, known to God from eternity are all his works. God knows all things possible because he knows what his attributes could accomplish. And he knows all things actual because he knows what he has purposed to accomplish. He knows what his decrees are. And so he says, first, it's foreknown. 
A second, um, uh, it is a, it was on purpose. It was purposed. It was not an accident. Third, it was a determined purpose or a predestined purpose. Now, you take those three together and you realize there is no way that the crucifixion could not happen. It had to happen. And um, over and over in the Gospels, Jesus says that he had to be crucified. Luke 24, verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. In fact, uh, the Greek word for must, uh, day, D-E-I, uh, occurs so many times on the lips of the Lord that commentators speak of this as the divine day, D-E-I, that controlled every aspect of Christ's life. There was not a detail that could not be said that this must happen uh, according to the hour and according to the plan that the Lord had laid out. And so this is why Revelation says that Jesus was the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. In God's purposes and in His predestined plan, it was already as good as done. There was nothing that could hinder it from happening. Now, that's the one side. Now, lest a person think that because God had predestined it, that this robs people of their own initiative <coughs> and of their own decision-making, Peter goes on to say in verse 23... Well, we'll start with the beginning. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. He puts the blame on them, and later on in this chapter, he calls them to repentance for their sin. And so, one of the things that we need to keep in our minds is just because a uh, person has uh, made a decision and is freely done so does not mean that God has not determined it. And just because God has determined some historical event does not mean that men will not be held responsible for uh, what uh, they have done or is not an active agent in it. Um, Peter says, you did it, you're guilty. And so we've got divine sovereignty, we've got human responsibility. How could both be true? And there are people who deny uh, one or the other side. Hyper-Calvinists have gone to one extreme and they have denied human responsibility. And there are Arminians who go to the other extreme and they say, uh, God does not predestine absolutely every detail of history. But the biblical balance is that both are true. God predestines every detail of history, every decision of man, every word that comes forth from people's lips, according to Proverbs. In fact, every... Now get this, every sin is predestined. Now this may seem shocking to you, but the scripture is very clear about that. There is nothing in life that is outside of God's plan. Even the mocking of the priests made of Jesus was recorded hundreds of years before in Psalm 22. Now if you think that's not true, then you have no comfort for the bad things that happen in your life. Uh, you can have no comfort that, uh, say, when you were abused as a child, that that has worked together for your good. See, if all things work together for the good of those who love God, which Romans 8, 28 says that they do, then here's the question that comes up. When Joe was hit by a drunk driver, was paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life, was that something that's just a freak, meaningless event? Or was that something that was determined by God? And the scripture says it was worked together for his good. It was not a meaningless event. 
Um, And so this is something that I think we need to uh, think through. If God determined that that person would be struck and for his good and the glory of his kingdom, he would be paralyzed for the rest of his life, he had to be able to control the fact that that drunk would get drunk on that day, that he would sinfully drive that car at just the time that he, that he did. Now, I've talked to Christians who think, man, that's blasphemy, Phil. You cannot be saying that. And yet, here in this chapter, the greatest sin that has ever happened in all of history has been not only foreknown by God and purposed by God, but determined by God down to the smallest details. And so we have to deal with this issue. Now, let me illustrate with this pen here on how both human responsibility and divine sovereignty are true. And I know those of you who have been around a while have heard me give this illustration uh, more than once, but be patient with me because uh, newer people have not heard this. But what is it that is keeping this pen from falling to the ground? It is the restraining energy of my hand. And if I relinquish this, if I give this up, of its own nature, that pen will fall to the ground. I don't have to throw that pen to the ground for that pen to go to the ground, do I? All I have to do is let go of the restraining uh, power that is in my hand and it will fall of its own accord. Now, by letting the pen go, I have determined that it will fall but it falls of its own accord. Now, in the same way, God's restraining grace holds up sinners and keeps them from falling deeper and deeper into depravity, which would be the natural bent of their depravity. And just as the inherent nature of gravity is constantly pulling that pen down, so the inherent nature of depravity is always pulling sinners down, but God's grace keeps them from sinning as bad as they could be sinning. Now, that is incredible mercy, and we call it common grace. It's God's restraining grace. They don't deserve it. In fact, that is such a neat thing that God keeps them from sinning sins that could cause them to be having greater judgments in the future. So it's not something that is deserved. But if God were to withdraw his restraining grace from a... An, uh, an unbeliever, what would immediately happen is that he would be pulled by his depravity down into sin immediately. God doesn't force him. His grace, that person will fall. Now, who is to blame for the sinner's sin? Well, we would say it's the sinner. The sinner is the one who did the sinning, right? Uh, the sinner wants to do the sin. God is not forcing him. Just as I do not have to throw the pen down to determine that that pen will fall to the ground, God does not have to throw people down to determine that sins will happen. All he has to do is withdraw that restraining hand. God would never force a person to sin. God is not the author of sin. He does not tempt anyone to sin. Scripture is very clear on that. And yet the scripture also says God has determined that sins will occur, like the crucifixion. And this is what Romans 1 and Romans 2 uh, say When people persist in rebelling against God, they despise the restraining grace that the Lord has given to them. He says, what what happens? Eventually, God gives them up to a depraved mind. What's happening there is God is saying, okay, you resist and resist. I'm going to let you see what happens when I let go of you 
and leave you to yourselves, they're automatically going to plummet into sin. And Romans 1 lists a long catalog of sins you will automatically plummet into if God gives you up to a depraved mind, homosexuality being one of the sure signs that God has given a person up, uh, according to Romans chapter 1. So what happens when a pen is given up to its own nature? It falls to the ground. What happens when a sin is given, sinner is given up to his own nature? He falls to the ground. Uh, now, with that as an explanation, there's all kinds of scriptures that you can now understand. In Exodus 8, scripture says, beginning in Exodus 8, three times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Beginning in Exodus chapter 4, 15 times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which is true would say both are true. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? It wasn't actively causing him to sin. Here he is restraining Pharaoh and is showing mercy and grace to Pharaoh and Pharaoh despises that. All God has to do is to say, okay, I'm no longer going to restrain. I'll let you to yourself and automatically his heart will be hardened. He hardens his own heart. God hardens his heart by withdrawing his restraining grace. And so... Um, uh, God is not the author of sin, and yet he still can determine it. The same is true of evil wars. Scripture is so clear. God is the one who brings wars to pass. And yet he judges the very people whom he brought uh, against Israel or against other nations. He judges them for the sinful way in which they did that war. How can the two be true? Well, the way God does it is, again, by withdrawing Uh, from their lives, his restraining grace. Let me give you an example that wars are not an indication that life is out of control and that God is not in control of uh, all things. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. And I'm saying God is in such control, he even controls the king's heart. It's exactly what it's saying. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now, God does not force that king to go to war. All he has to do is withdraw his restraining grace. It's guaranteed uh, if he uh, withdraws it in certain parts of his life that that king is going to give a certain thing. Now, if if instead of viewing... Uh, a man as being composed of just one pen, if you see a man as composed of a complex of thousands of pens with God restraining some and not restraining others, giving them up, you can see how God can control every facet of history without ever once being the author of sin. Does that make sense? Now, even believers, here's the scary thing. Even believers can have God's restraining grace withdrawn when we are presumptuous and proud and hard-hearted. 2 Samuel 24.1 shows this when God got angry with David. He moved David to number Israel. Numbering Israel was a, a sin, and I won't get into why it was a sin, but he moved David to number Israel. But how did he do it? He did it by removing his protection from Satan, uh, from David's life. First Chronicles 21, verse 1 tells us the same story, but now a different book, tells us that Satan was the active agent. So 1 Samuel 24 says, God moved David's heart to number Israel. First Chronicles 21 tells us Satan moved David's heart, which is true. Both are true. How did God move his heart? He was saying, David, in effect, 
David, you're acting as if you can live without me. Just watch what happens when I step back for a while. You're going to be in such deep trouble. So he withdraws his protection from David's life. Satan's right in there, moving David's heart. And God knows Satan's going to take advantage of that as soon as he removes his restraint. And so God guaranteed the sin and the subsequent judgment because of his presumption. But he used that to show David, you can't live without me. You cannot presume upon me. It wasn't because he wanted him to sin. It was because he wanted him not to sin. And this is why the Puritans speak of God's desertions for a while in a believer's life being an act of love to drive believers ever closer to himself. 1 Samuel 2.25 is another example. Speaking about the sons of Eli, it says, Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Now, let's just think about the practical implications of that verse there. The first thing that this means is we must cling to God at all times and pray to the Lord. Lord, you are able to keep me from stumbling. I know my heart. I know how easy it would be to fall into sin. Do not presume upon the Lord's grace. Do not despise his mercies in your life. Do not treat sin lightly. Secondly, be quick to repent of your sin as David did because what happens is one sin leads to another down a slippery slope and you need to be so quick to repent. Now, God has not destined you to fall if you cry out to the Lord. If you in humility say, Lord, keep me, as a sure sign, you're not going to fall. Okay? He gives grace to the humble. He says, a broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 17. Thirdly, realize that when evil comes against you from other people, that it is not a sign that God is not in control. So many people freak out when bad things happen to them and they think, well, there's just another thing. If only God was in control of that person, I wouldn't be suffering like this. No, God controls absolutely everything and he would not allow anything to happen to you that is not for your good and for his ultimate glory. Nothing can mess up his plans. Now, that's encouraging. God can control sinners to such a degree. Fourth. Everyone is fully responsible for their own sins. Whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever, you can never use the excuse, God made me do it. No, you didn't. You did it yourself. You wanted to sin. Um, you can't use the excuse, the devil made me do it. Believers and unbelievers are responsible for their own sins, and there is no such thing as becoming a victim of your own sin. Men who are in bondage have willingly placed themselves there. Fifth, have confidence that God can help you to overcome your sin and to get you out of any difficult situation. Any God who can control everything and yet still maintain your liberty and maintain and preserve your freedom is a God in whom you can have confidence that if God is for us, who can be against us? Or that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is correct, that he's never going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, make a way of escape. So for me, this is an incredibly encouraging verse. God is sovereign over everything. We are responsible for all of our decisions. Okay? Both of those need to be held. Moving on to verse 24. Whom God raised up. Now, point by point, Peter is demolishing any reason to be ashamed of Jesus. But notice that he doesn't remove the shame. Instead, what he does is he takes our focus off of ourselves, off of the praises of men, and places our eyes on the God 
whom God raised up, he says. God had clearly certified that Jesus was the Messiah. God had clearly empowered Jesus through these miracles and these signs and these wonders. God had determined the crucifixion and God had raised him up. In fact, these last two verses indicate there is no way these people could have crucified Jesus unless the Father had given up Jesus. And when they did crucify him, there was nothing that could stop them, uh, stop God from raising up Jesus. Okay, God is in total, complete control. And then he goes on to say, having loosed, uh, having loosed the pains of death. Now, let me just see if it's in the margin here. Um, yeah, birth pangs. Literally, it's birth pangs. If you look in the dictionary, uh, it's indicating that death is going through birth pangs. Now, I think this is such a cool image of what we can expect when we are going to die it is not the end or the cessation of our life. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's uncomfortable. But you are being birthed into a new life. And this was true of Jesus as well. God the Father loosed him from death's, death's grip. And Peter gives as his reason in the next phrase, um, <clears throat> whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He was the Messiah. And here's what one older writer said. The abyss could no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. I think that's such a wonderful image that he gives there. And this is what we can look forward to, that uh, death does not have its hold upon us. Yes, there's uncomfortableness. And yet we are being ushered into new life. And then Peter gives some Old Testament scripture to back up his assertions. And one of the things that I would point out is that a sermon without scripture is not a sermon. And yet, how many churches have I gone to, uh, and maybe I've gone to the wrong churches in the past, when I, where the person will read the scripture before the sermon and never again refer to the Bible? Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, when you're in a church, when you're visiting elsewhere, and the, the preacher never refers to the Scripture, you're in the wrong church. There are tons of sermons in the Bible, and they all refer to the Bible, okay? Uh, you're not preaching unless there's Scripture. So here's the Scripture he refers to. It's Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Let's begin reading ver uh, at verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. <clears throat> and I'm going to end the sermon today just by looking at that paragraph. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Peter is saying that the Messiah was supposed to be resurrected, but you can't get resurrected unless you died first, right? That's just a simple point of logic. And so the very thing that was a stumbling block to the Jews that this so-called Messiah has died, God says, is the very stepping stone to his enthronement. You had to go through that. And uh, we're going to look at the enthronement next time, but uh, this passage goes even further and shows that even in the grave and even in Hades, Jesus was triumphing with the full favor of God resting upon him. That's really an incredible answer to any shame that these Jews may have felt. 
For David said concerning him, verse 25 begins, and those are important words because there are a lot of people and uh, some commentators in my library who say that Psalm 16 was only referring to David and it's only an illustration or it's tangentially referring to, uh, to Jesus. I don't see how that can square with the first words of verse 25. It says, for David says concerning him. It's concerning Jesus. So I agree with those commentators who say that every single word that uh, he quotes here is a reference, is Jesus' words. And so they actually should be capitalized when it's my. You could capitalize all the my's that are in there. Uh, beginning at um, uh, verse 25, he says, these are prophetically uttered by David, but they're the words of Jesus. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He, he saw every step of the way. He clearly foresaw the cross. His last words were, what? Into your hands I commend my spirit. And so even in death, the Father was with him. Uh, verse 25, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Now, if God was at Messiah's right hand, it was a sign not of the Father's dishonor, but of the greatest honor that the Son uh, could have had. And this Messiah that the Psalm says would die is going to be honored in that death. Uh, what God, uh, what man despises, God honors in this case. <clears throat> and God's presence guaranteed that the Messiah would be not be shaken. By the way, this is a testimony any saint can make as well. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 26, Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Now this is further proof that Christ's death was something to rejoice in, not to be embarrassed about. Even during those three days in the tomb, Jesus was rejoicing. He says, Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. Even his body, which was lying in the tomb when he was uttering these words, was as it were, at rest in God's care. He could entrust it to God's care. And when it says his body would rest in hope, hope is an anticipation of something for that body, right? So this is a reference to the resurrection of Christ's body. He expands on that in verse 27. He says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, not seeing corruption was that his body did not rot. His body did not decay. Now, what about the first part, though? Because that's talking about his soul. It says his soul would not be left in Hades. What's that talking about? Most of the Puritans, um, Spurgeon thinks all of the Puritans, rejected the idea. Uh, I don't know how you could say that because, you know, who's read all of the Puritans? But um, it seems that most of the Puritans, if not all of them, rejected the Anglican idea that's reflected in the King James that Jesus' soul descended into hell. And um, if the King James words it this way, you will not leave my soul in hell. Now, if it was not going to be left in hell, that implies it was in hell until it was taken out. And yet Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Sounds a little bit different than hell. Uh, quite the opposite of hell, doesn't it? Uh, that's Luke 23, verse 43. And so there's always been a tension for those who have followed the King James at this point. How can he be in hell? And by the way, hell is a legitimate, one of two, and there's only two legitimate ways to translate Hades. How can he be in hell and be in paradise at the same time? 
Um, the same issue comes up when people recite the Apostles' Creed. I've always refused to say he descended into hell. And so let me just spend a little bit of time discussing this issue because some of you have maybe never even run across this, have not heard about this. In the original Greek of the Apostles' Creed, it says about Jesus, he descended into Hades. Well, you can see that's perfectly biblical. But when they translated that Greek into English, they mistranslated it by saying he descended into hell. Notice it's Jesus' soul that is talking here. His soul is in Hades. He's talking while he's there. And notice his soul is not in torment in the least. He has comfort and security in God's presence. That's verse 25. Verse 26 says his heart is rejoicing. His tongue is glad. Now, let me tell you something. The tongue of the rich man in Luke chapter 16, when it was in Hades, was not comforted and was not joyful. Both he and his tongue were in utter anguish. So what's going on here? Verse 28 says, You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. That sounds a little bit more like the paradise he was talking about on the cross than it does of hell. And there's a very easy solution to this. This was the solution held to by the ancient Jews. It was held to by the early church. It was held to by uh, most of the later, although there was some corruption of it in, in later uh, church history. It was held to by most of the Puritans, by many Reformed authors like, um, like um, Charles Spurgeon, and yet there are many today who think that the Reformed view uh, believes in the Old Testament people instantly went uh, to heaven. Uh, I have to admit, my view that I'm going to explain to you right now is not the majority Reformed view, but it is the biblical view. <laughs> okay, and it is the historical view. It's the older view. But I do want you to at least realize that uh, you can do more study on this and check me out and see if this is not, if this is not uh, true. So here is the older view. They believe that in the Old Testament, different in the New, but prior to the resurrection of Christ, both believers and unbelievers went to the heart of the earth in a subterranean call it storage place, called Sheol in the Old Testament and called Hades in the New Testament. Now, what the scripture describes as lower uh, Sheol, the same as lower Hades, is a place of torment. And what it describes as upper Sheol is called paradise and is called Abraham's bosom. Now, some people think this view originated in the early church and that they were borrowing it from um, uh, from the Greeks who had their own strange idea of Hades, which is actually quite different. But that's not true. They took it straight from the theology that had always been propagated by the Jews. And let me quote from an example. Josephus wrote in, uh, in the first century, he was a priest, a historian. He wrote an article called uh, A Treatise on Hades. And in that treatise... He describes the lower part containing torment. He says, this place we call the bosom of Abraham. And so he calls it paradise. He calls it the bosom of Abraham. He said that lower Hades was a waiting place until judgment day when everyone in that lower place of Hades would be cast into the lake of fire. But he said, even now they are in fire. They are in torment in this lower Hades. He said that there's huge gap between the two subterranean places. And speaking of unbelievers in Hades, Josephus said this, Where they see the place of the fathers and of the just, even hereby are they punished. 
for a chaos deep and large is fixed between them, insomuch that a just man that hath compassion upon them cannot be admitted, nor can one that is unjust. If he were bold enough to attempt it, pass over it. Now, doesn't that sound exactly like Luke chapter 16? I want you to turn there to, uh, to Luke chapter 16. I want to read that whole uh, passage. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. How many have ever heard this before? Okay, very few, but there are a few. Okay, Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, any Jew in Christ's day who heard this would have automatically assumed and rightly assumed that he's talking about a subterranean place called Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And so Jesus calls it the same thing that Josephus does. He also says Hades, lower Hades is far off from upper Hades. Now, why do I say lower Hades? Because he has to lift up his eyes, right? Why is he lifting up his eyes? He's in lower Hades. And so it's implying exactly the same thing. We'll get to some of the Old Testament scriptures that make it explicit. Verse 24, Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Almost identical words to what Josephus said. Verse 27, Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. It's close enough that there can be communication. It's far enough that no one can cross over. It's all in the same place called Hades. Now, both paradise and torment... In the heart of the earth, the Old Testament for Hades was Sheol. Deuteronomy 32, verse 22, speaks of fire burning in the lowest part of Sheol. Now, because of how deep it was, Sheol was called, quote, the pit. Job 33, verse 22. Scripture speaks of the depths of Sheol. Proverbs 9, 18. It should never be translated as the grave, which many translations do, because people are conscious. Sheol. They have pain there, Psalm 116.3. Sorrow, 2 Samuel 22.6. People communicate with each other in Sheol. Isaiah 14.9 and 10. Ezekiel 32.31-33. And so it really is, it's a, a real place in the heart of the earth. Now that's torment Sheol, but paradise Sheol is also in the heart of the earth. Let me just give you a few samples. Jacob claimed, I will go down into Sheol to my son mourning. So Sheol for Jacob was down. 
1 Samuel 28, 11 through 16, God did a very unusual thing. He brought up the spirit of Samuel from Sheol and uh, had Samuel talk to Saul. And it says that God brought him, quote, up out of the earth. It's a spirit that's in the earth. And he's brought up, up. Okay, if he's brought up, that implies he was down in the earth. Then Samuel says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Verse 15, Samuel went on to say to Saul, moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And so everyone in the Old Testament went to the same place, uh, Sheol or Hades. Now, some have thought that Enoch and Elijah um, were caught up into the third heaven, and using those two passages, they have assumed that everybody in the Old Testament who died instantly went to heaven, just like we now instantly go to heaven. Uh, however, that would be a flat-out contradiction of Christ's statement in John 3, verse 13. John 3, Jesus said, No one has ascended to heaven except he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. He said, no one has ascended to heaven. But they say, well, how do you explain Enoch and Elijah then? In Genesis, it says, and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. But it doesn't say where he took him, does it? Now, there is one problem passage from my viewpoint, and I'm going to give it to you right here. It's 2 Kings 2, verse 11. And this is the other passage that they bring up. And let me quote it. A little bit more troublesome. It says, Suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So the answer to that is, how many heavens are there? There's three heavens. And it says he went up into heaven. If you look at almost any translation... The word heaven in Hebrew and the word heaven in Greek is frequently translated as the air or sky. Okay? And so he went up into heaven could easily mean he just was caught up into the sky. He was caught up into the, the clouds. Secondly, it should be noted that 2 Kings 2, verses 16 through 18, the prophets in Elijah's school thought that God had cast his body down onto the ground somewhere, and they asked Elisha for permission to go out and hunt for it so that they could bury it. Their conception was that heaven was not yet prepared for bodies. And they were prophets. They probably should have known. And so they went out trying to find the body so they could bury it. And then thirdly, I think the reason why God took Elijah's body away was the same reason God took the body of Moses away, from the people, and we know his body was buried by the Lord himself. In, in Deuteronomy 34, verse 6, it talks about Moses being taken away, buried by the Lord. And it says in Jude that the devil contended with Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. Now, why do you think Satan would want to have his body? I think it was probably to make it into a shrine to ensnare the hearts of these Israelites rather than looking to God, looking to Moses as being uh, something. And that's probably the same thing. Elijah was so remarkable. God says, I don't even want you guys to know where his tomb is. We know what happens to famous people. You know, they go and kiss the tombstones and whatnot. God says, no way, that's not going to happen. So I think there's a perfectly logical answer for that one passage and it in no way 
uh, overturns this thesis. Now turn with me to three passages. First of all, Romans chapter 10. And I want to quickly look. There's other passages as well, but three passages that clearly show Jesus was not in heaven during the three days that he was dead. Uh, He was in Sheol. Romans 10, and let's begin at verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, notice that the term abyss is used to describe this place of the dead. It is the deep part of the earth. And so this passage indicates when Christ was dead, he was in the abyss. Turn next to Ephesians chapter 4. This is a passage that talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit, giving of gifts, and uh, those all flow from the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Ephesians chapter 4 and beginning at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, the ones who were captive were the believers who were in Sheol. Uh, It was paradise, but it was only a provisional place. It was a waiting place, a holding tank, if you will, until redemption was accomplished and they could be taken to heaven. So he takes them captive, verse 9. It says, now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now, keep in mind, Christ's body did not go down into the lower parts of the earth. In fact, they lifted it up into a tomb carved out of a cliff. And even in the tomb, he's elevated on top of a platform. It's not talking about his body. It's Jesus as a person descended into the lower parts of the earth. Verse 10. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, that fits in perfectly with the Jewish and the uh, early church idea that Hades was in the heart of the earth. Uh, Next passage, and this will be the last one, 1 Peter 3 and beginning at verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3 and beginning at verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now, there are various interpretations of this passage, but the way I see this, he went and he preached in a place called a prison, okay, to spirits in prison. And the people that he was preaching to are people who have been long since dead uh, from the times even of Noah. Uh, And what the proclamation was, we're not told. I think we have a hint in Luke 9, verse 31. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. He meets with Elijah and with Moses, and he's talking with them. And here's what he's talking about. It says, he was talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Now, the Greek word for departure is exodus, the same word that's used in the Septuagint in the book of Exodus. And so what Christ is doing is he's going to be leading a mighty exodus just like Moses led an exodus out of Egypt, only this time it's going to be an exodus of souls out of prison. Christ took all of the saints who were in paradise portion of Hades, he took them to heaven. Now, Christ did say, behold, I, no, I go to prepare a place for you. They, they needed a place prepared. It hadn't been prepared yet. I go to prepare a place for you, and he did. From that point on, believers, the moment they die, go to heaven. We already have the mansions that have been prepared for us uh, in glory. And so Christ led an exodus out of Hades into the final promised land. That's Luke 9, 31. And whatever his proclamation was, when he was in the lower parts of the earth, it must have brought incredible joy to the people who were there because in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 23, it calls upon, quote, the lower parts of the earth to shout for joy. And so I believe this was the victory march of Christ, the triumphal procession leading an exodus announcing his victory. Revelation gives the story of the resurrection in the language of a great battle and an exodus into the wilderness. Now, that was a long detour, and I'm almost finished, but if you want more information on that, I do have an older paper that was uh, printed up on the subject that uh, you can have. But let's go back to Acts, and let's quickly finish off that section. And I'm going to go ahead and read the last verse in context again, beginning at verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence." Though Jews had been too proud to embrace Jesus previously, Peter makes it unmistakably clear. If you reject Jesus, you are giving up on that fullness of joy which only believers, only those who are followers of Yeshua will be able to enter into. Now, we're not going to look at the rest of Peter's sermon today, but let me just close with a couple thoughts on verse 28. You have made known to me the ways of life. Stephen Sharnock, uh, I think, made a wonderful uh, comment on that phrase. He says, God hath now opened the way to paradise, which was stopped up by the flaming sword and made the path plain by admitting into heaven the head of the believing world. And so paradise and life were regained by the second Adam. And he's the first one to step through those gates and uh, into the place prepared for his people. The next phrase says, you will make me full of joy in your presence. And I'm not sure why Peter didn't quote the last phrase, but the next phrase in Psalm 16 adds, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But even without that, this phrase captures everything. Fullness of joy. That's what Christ entered into as our forerunner. And that's what each one of us can have if we put our trust in Jesus. He paid the penalty for our sins with his death, and he purchased paradise with his life. And really, it's faith that is the key to open up that door and give us entrance into paradise forever. He says that we can have fullness of joy. And yet, how many people trade away that joy because they are ashamed of Jesus and of his words? Uh, my uh, admonition to you 
is that each one of you make sure you have secured that eternal joy by trusting in Jesus. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. And uh, there is so much more that is in this passage that I have had to even skip over. But I pray that you would make us to glory in the richness and mine into your word, understand it, and to seek to adjust our lives to the truths that are in your scripture. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.